It's good to see some of you back um, after your travels, and of course, it's always good to see our regular faces as well, as well as our um, our visitors and our new uh, members today. Uh, we welcome you to the exchange. I hope you've had a good week. Um, I know that some of you have had good weeks, you know, just off of, of uh, vacation, transitioning before you have to go back to work. But perhaps you've also had a tough week. Um, probably some of you had difficult weeks, uh, maybe because you have to go back to work soon, or um, perhaps work is getting difficult, or perhaps um, in your personal life there are some things that you're having to go through. When we read and see and hear the news, we know that certainly there are thousands of people around the world who have had terrible weeks. There are people who are um, experiencing immense pain and, and trouble. And whenever we see and hear about global pain and suffering, as well as experience trouble in our own lives, we are faced with the questions of, if there is a God, then why does this happen? Why isn't Jesus doing something? What is he doing now? And when is this all going to be over? There are many answers to these questions. But the truth is that the answers may never quite fully justify the global pain and our personal pain and will not fully satisfy the hunger and the pain in our hearts. It's not the answers themselves, but the seeking after the answers that matters. It's that seeking that actually puts us face to face then with the God who then brings about the healing and the hope and the courage that we need to be the change that we wish to see. It's in that encounter with God, in that wrestling with God, in that relationship with God, that we then find the answers to the questions. But it all begins with the questions. The questions really are the birthplace to change. We've been going through um, the history of the church, and we began at that place. The moment where Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven, all of a sudden there was this group of people left with a mission. And they became the church. And we've been kind of exploring the how the church has evolved and how the times have changed and how the church has dealt with those changes. But the church, too, also began with a question. And we turn to the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, if not, it will also be up on the screen for you. The book of Acts was written by um, a doctor named Luke, who is a companion to a man named Paul. And in the book of Acts, we find an account of the question that the disciples who were left by Jesus asked. And so we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 onward. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This was the question that was on their minds. In other words, they're asking Jesus, is it now over our waiting, our disappointment, our expectations? Are you now going to fulfill all our desires by becoming king of Israel and restoring the kingdom back to Israel from the Romans? But notice what Jesus says. Jesus does not answer the question, is this it? 
Instead, he says to them, it is not for you. Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus does not explain the when, but instead he addresses the how. He says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit who's going to enable you to be my witnesses and you're going to share the story about the kingdom of God to those around you and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And of course, um, the implication is, and then, and then he will restore everything to its rightful place. After he answers them in this way, he says, yeah, he is taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up to the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood by them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So they've been given the how. He says, go out and share and be my witnesses. And then he leaves them with this promise that he is coming back. That he is coming back. And this promise about the second coming of Jesus, or what's called the advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, this was the hope that the early Christians clung onto throughout the centuries that followed. In the first 300 years after Jesus left them with this promise, the Christians were mercilessly persecuted, and we looked at that in our series of, of uh, the history of Christianity. During that time, the uh, disciples who had seen Jesus leave longed for Jesus to come back. And there are over 100 references to the second coming of Jesus in the New Testament. Here's just two of them out of the 100. Second Thessalonians, this is written by uh, Paul, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So they clung on during their persecution to the hope and promise that Jesus was going to make things right one day. Also in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 9, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So throughout the first 300 centuries, as the Christians are being persecuted, they repeated these promises to themselves, the day is coming when the suffering is going to end. The day is coming when Jesus is coming back and justice will once more reign. But what happened, and we looked at this, uh, was that as the church became then the state religion of the Roman Empire, when they went from being the persecuted to now being part of the privileged, and as they became now just citizens of the entire empire that had become uh in a very short time, Christianized. And in that time, they were given a religion rather than invited to a relationship. And when that happened, for over a thousand years, they had lost then that ability to go and look at the promises of God. Um, as we talked about during that time, the Bible was not readily available to the lay people. And there were very few pi uh, copies of the Bible that were even in existence. And if they existed, they were um, usually in Latin, and most of the people couldn't even read them. And then we saw how, thanks to the Protestant Reformation, as well as the invention of the printing press, the Bible then became available in local languages to more people. So then, 
after the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century onwards, people then went back to the study of the Bible. And as they studied the Bible, they came back to these references about the second coming of Jesus. And in particular, they became very interested in the prophecies found in the books of Daniel and Revelation that gave um, time prophecies related to the second coming. Especially um, after 1798, the French Revolution, many groups of people and scholars and lay people became very interested in one particular time prophecy. And it's found in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. There's um, 13 and 14. There's a lot more to this prophecy than this these two verses, but I'm just quoting um, the part that has the numbers. So it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how long is division concerning the continual burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to him, For two thousand and three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This question, how long? It's once again echoing that how long and, and when and is this now the time to restore the kingdom that's been kind of on the minds of the people? And it seems like the answer is saying there's a definite time period and then there's going to be an end. And many people who are studying these um, passages in Daniel 7 to 9, there were markers in those chapters that indicated when the 2300-day prophecy would begin, uh, what events would happen throughout that time, and then ultimately how at the end of it the sanctuary would be cleansed. And so people in uh, Europe, later in America, as well as Australia and other countries, um, began to preach on this topic, began to write papers on this topic, and there were even conferences where they would come together. Um, a wealthy businessman would, would pay a bunch of Bible scholars to come together and study this passage. And what most of these uh, individuals and groups discovered was that according to the time prophecy um, in Daniel, when you read Daniel 7 through 9, you find out that the beginning of the 2300-day prophecy is when the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem. Because during the time of Daniel, when the book was written, when the prophecy was written, um, Jerusalem had already been conquered by Babylon. But God had given them that prophecy that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And he said, when the decree goes out that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, that's the beginning of the time prophecy. So when individuals in the 19th century studied that passage, they were able to look in their history books to say, okay, well, when was the decree given? And there were three times when the decree was given uh, that were pretty close to each other. And so they would then add 2,300 years because in Bible prophecy, one day goes one year. And by the way, if you want to know more about this, um, please come talk to me or Roy because I'm not going to go into the details of how we worked that all out during today's sermon, but we're more than happy to explain it to you one-on-one. -on -one. And so the, the individuals who studied this prophecy came to the conclusion that if you did the math of adding when the decree went out, and like I said, there were three different times, but the latest one was in 457 BC, and you add 2,300 years, you would come to, and you know, some said 1843, some said 1850, but all around that time, around that time, sometime in the 1850s, they said that would be the sanctuary being cleansed. Now, they all understood this to mean that's when Jesus is coming back. They thought to themselves, that is when there will be justice. That will. That is when all the suffering will end. That is when everything will be restored. And so many individuals looked forward to the very, very imminent return of Jesus Christ in the 1800s. 
One of those individuals was a man named William Miller. William Miller was a staunch atheist. And in fact, he used to make fun of his grandfather, who was a, a preacher. He would go to the bars, and in, in front of his friends, he would you know, pretend he was preaching to make them laugh. And you know, he would totally make fun of all the Christians out there. But after he had been drafted into the war, um, and he saw all the death around him, he began to think a little more about the question, what does happen after life? Is this all there is to live? And um, still wasn't really convinced about Christianity, um, was into deism for a while. And then one one day he was um, reading something uh, back in those days, rather than preachers kind of preaching, they would have things written out and then people would read them. Um, and they just asked him, can you read this today? You, you know, he was an educated man. Not everybody knew how to read. And so he began to read. And as he read, it talked about Jesus in such a way that it um, quite, let me just, that's a picture of William Miller, good looking man. Um, I'll just read the quote to you before I move on to that one. He he says here, Suddenly the character of a savior was vividly impressed upon my mind. It seemed that there might be a being so good and compassionate as to himself atone for our transgressions and thereby save us from suffering the penalty of sin. I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be and imagined that I could cast myself into the arms of and trust in the mercy of such a one. And so that was in um, September of 1816 that he finally decided, you know what? I, I do believe and I do want to be a Christian. And so he then started studying the Bible and he loved it. And as he was studying the, the Bible, he especially loved and was fascinated by the book of Daniel. And as he was studying Daniel chapter 8, 7 through 9, um, chapter 7 through 9, he also realized, he did the math, and he came to the conclusion. Um, at first, he was saying 1843. So you can see this chart here where he, like I said, we're happy to explain all this at a different time to you. But um, after all the math and after all the Bible verses, came to the conclusion that um, 1843 would be when Jesus would come again. Now, he later fine-tuned that. And let me show you this chart. looks a little prettier. Um, he finally fine-tuned that to October 22nd, 1844. Now, this was 1818 that he came to this realization that Jesus was coming in his lifetime. Now, when he studied this and realized this, he said to himself, surely I'm not the only one who has done the math of 457, you know, add 2,300. He, he said 1843 at first because he forgot that when you go from 1 BC to 1 AD, it's actually two years and not anyway. And so, um, you know, he's, he's thinking to himself, well, surely I'm not the only one. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Cause I haven't heard anyone talk about this. He thought to himself. And so I'll just keep this to myself and just, yeah, I'll just keep this to myself. But he had this nagging voice in his head saying, go tell it to the world. I'm not going to tell it to the world. I'm not a preacher. He wasn't. He was a lay person. He had his own job. And so he was like, this is not my job. That's the pastor's job to tell it to the world. And um, he tried to go on with his work. He tried to go on with his life. But when he was lying down, when he's working, all day long, there would be that nagging voice. Go. Tell it to the world. He tried to ignore it. 13 years. 13 years he did not have peace and he constantly would go back to that study and he would be like, well, am I wrong? Is this right? And he always came to that conclusion. No, I'm pretty sure this is it, but 
I don't want to be Noah. I don't want to be the one to tell people something's happening when there is no evidence of it um, around me and when everyone seems to be going on with their lives. And so he kept it to himself. But that voice did not go away. Go. Tell it to the world. Finally, in August of 1831, 13 years after he had been struggling with this, finally he was so frustrated with that constant nagging voice that he said, all right, God, tell you what. If someone comes and asks me to preach about this, I will. And then he thought, oh, phew, got that off my chest. There's no way anyone's going to invite me to preach because he wasn't a pastor, remember? Um, and he was free. He felt wonderful. And um, he thought, I'm done with this now. I'm done with this burden. A few hours later, his nephew came knocking on the door and... Uh, said that the pastor was going out of town and they were wondering if he, William Miller, could come and preach about the Advent, the second coming of Jesus. Without even answering his nephew, William Miller stormed out of the house, went out to the field and started yelling at God. This is so not fair. <laughs> I, I didn't really want to do this. Um, how could you expect me to share this? After two hours of yelling at God, he finally came to peace with the fact that God not only would equip him, but would um, be with him as he shared this very difficult message. And so he went and told his bewildered nephew waiting inside for two hours, all right, I'll come. And he did. So beginning in 1831, William Miller preached to thousands of people who flocked to hear this message and to study that graph and to study the prophecies that in on October 22nd, 1844, Jesus was coming. More than 100,000 people were expelled from their churches for their belief in the soon coming of Christ. There are more than 200 ministers from all the Protestant uh, denominations um, who had studied and said, yep, we agree with your study. And we believe that on October 22nd, 1844, Jesus has come. They sold everything they had. They um, made peace with all their neighbors and friends and family. And they waited for Jesus to come. All day, October 22nd, they waited. All night, they waited. And when the morning dawned on October 23rd, 1844, more than 100,000 people were devastated, devastated. Some were weeping. Some were just dumbfounded. Some just hung their heads and didn't know what to do now. Some said, you know what? Forget this and turn their back on God forever. Some said, well, maybe Jesus did come. He's come into my heart spiritually. And they kind of, you know, wasn't really sure if that's what happened, but they, they went with that. Another group said, well, maybe it's next year, 1845. And they just kind of kept hoping that, you know, the date would work. Many kind of returned back to their lives, tried to get back to, to, you know, their homes or their jobs. And, um, needless to say, were very, very disappointed. And this event was, was, became known as the great disappointment. But there was another group that reacted differently to the great disappointment. This group was determined 
to ask questions. Remember, questions is the birthplace of change. And they asked the questions, where did we go wrong? What is the prophecy really saying? What is Jesus doing now? And when you look at this group, they're a very interesting mix of ages and backgrounds. Um, here's just the picture, artist depiction of this little group. But this is their ages in 1844. And you can see that um, they range from 12 years old, right? Uriah Smith, if you've ever heard of these names, John Andrews was eight, 15. A uh, woman named Ellen Harmon was 17. James White, they are these two married, were, were 23. Um, you know, I can never figure out what ORL stands for. But his name, maybe he didn't have a nice name. He's always referred to as or O.R.L. Croisier was 24. Harry Manson was 38. John Byington was 46. Joseph Bates was the old one in the group, 52. And there were others, but these are some of the prominent um, names that uh, we still know of today. And these individuals came from various backgrounds. Some of them were Methodists. Some of them were Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Christian Connection. They represented different churches. And when they had um, gone all in on this Millerite or Advent movement, they had been disfellowshipped from their churches and they had been kicked out for their beliefs. And now after this great disappointment, out of the hundreds of thousands of people, this group got together and they said, you know what, we're going to go back to the Bible. They had the humility to consider that maybe they were wrong, that maybe their presuppositions, there was something wrong in their presuppositions. And so then they actually had the courage to go back and study again. They had the passion to seek the truth. And as they studied and prayed together, this group realized that on October 22nd, 1844, the sanctuary would be cleansed, that phrase. They realized that they were wrong about that phrase. They all assumed that the sanctuary being cleansed meant the earth was going to be cleansed, that Jesus was going to come again. But when they looked back and studied, they realized that the phrase, the sanctuary will be cleansed, was talking about a whole different event. And when they went back and, and studied the book of Leviticus, there was an event where the sanctuary was cleansed. And it had to do with something entirely different than the second coming of Jesus. And again, I'll be happy to explain that to you another time. But what they discovered led them to come together and pray together um, and go back and, and was able to admit, you know what, we were wrong about the event but the Bible is still true and is telling us something that is very important that we now need to share. This group, because they have been dis- disfellowshipped, um, came and worshipped together. And as they worshipped together and as they shared what they had discovered now with others, um, this group grew. And they believed fervently. This What made this group different from the others is that they believed fervently in what is called present truth. And um, here's what present truth means. In the verse, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Peter is talking and he says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, for you know and are established in the present truth. As 16 and onwards. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, 
For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, after the great disappointment, this group realized that truth is like that day dawn, that light progressively grows brighter, and that they had to be willing to be go, to go back to the Word of God and say, what else can we learn? Where were we mistaken? Um, what is the truth for this time that we have now to share with others? And what more is there? As a result of that um, desire to always be on this pathway to progress, they discovered other truths in the Bible, such as the Seventh-day Sabbath or what really happens to you after you die. And they were able to discover more and more things that were different from other Christian uh, denominations um, and that were different from what society taught. But because they were willing to always look and look and search for the questions and the answers, um, they were always willing to learn more. Here's what some of them said about this idea of present truth. He said, in Peter's time, there was present truth, a truth applicable to that present time. The church has ever had a present truth. The present truth now is that which shows present duty and the right position for us who are about to witness the time of trouble. And another person, Uriah Smith, who was just like 12 <laughs> in 1844, later on, when he's a little older and more mature, 1857, he said, we have been enabled to rejoice in truths far in advance of what we then perceived, but we do not imagine yet to have it all by any means. We trust to progress still, our way growing continually brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. Then let us maintain an inquiring frame of mind, seeking for more light, more truth. And then in 1903, Ellen White um, also said, there will be a development of the understanding for the truth is capable of constant expansion. Our explanation of truth is yet incomplete. We have gathered up only f a few rays of light. You see, what made Adventists Adventists, what made this group different was that they had this passion and desire to be always seeking after present truth. They took a stand against creeds of, of, of having a set system of beliefs that was, you know, fixed in stone and that's all that they clung to. No, they said, we always want to learn more. We always want to use the Bible as the only creed. The Bible is the only thing that, um, will be that foundation for us to learn. And when this group had grown to a, a few thousand by 1861, they finally decided to organize into an official church. And when they did so, that question of creed came up. Should we have a statement of, Beliefs, should we have a creed, you know, since we are officially a church now? And um, the members who were there discussing this, let me go back, uh, John Loughborough, he said, the first step of apostasy is to get up a creed, telling us what we shall believe. The second is to try members by that creed. The fourth is to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And fifth, to commence persecution against such. And he was just saying, look, there is this progression that once you say, this is it, and then all of a sudden people get defensive about that and stop going back to the word of God to say, what else does the Bible say? James White wholeheartedly agreed. He said, some people mark out creeds and they say, the Lord must not do any further. <laughs> and um, But God has so much more to teach. And the delegates unanimously voted in 1861 to adopt a church covenant rather than a creed. And this is the covenant. We, the undersigned, hereby associate ourselves together as a church, taking the name Seventh-day Adventists, covenanting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. No more. And they said, we covenant 
to have the Bible as the only foundation of our faith. The Adventists, like the first disciples, went through a great disappointment. Can you imagine for the early disciples when Jesus was on the cross? For them, that was the end of all their dreams. The disciples had left everything behind, family, friends, fish, everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And now Jesus was on the cross, dead. And it's Friday night. Can you imagine as they go home, as they somehow make it through the next few days in bewilderment, in, in weeping, in, in complete tragic sadness, mourning not just the end of their dreams and expectations, but mourning the, the loss of their friend Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, their savior. And they have no idea that the event was necessary and that Jesus is going to be resurrected despite the prophecies he had given them. And when Jesus does resurrect and they're able to, to then comprehend that he's back and he's alive, then he says, I'm going to leave, but I'm coming back. And he says to them, I want you to take your eyes and focus off of the when and look at the how. Remember that? We read in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, they ask, are you now restoring the kingdom? And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you. You're going to be my witnesses. And in the same way, this early Adventist pioneers who had been focused on the when, and Jesus comes and reminds them, hey, I'm going to enable you to be my witnesses. When you um, go back and look at this promise, Jesus had said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he had said in Matthew twenty four fourteen, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's interesting when this little group of, of Adventists um, were coping with their disappointment, their focus was turned to a book in Revelation. And when you read the entire chapter, it describes um, this experience that his God's people will have one day. And it talks about how God's people one day will take a little book and they're going to, and it's symbolic, of course, in this prophecy. And, and John eats the little book. And at first it's so sweet in his mouth and then it turns bitter in his stomach. And the early Adventists really related to this and they said, yeah, that, that was our experience. We took this little book, the book of Daniel, just 12 chapters, right? This tiny book that had been sealed. They ate it with gladness. They were so excited that Jesus was coming. They thought this is the end of the suffering and the sin. This is, this is the fulfillment of our expectations. So sweet in their mouth and then bitter in their stomach on October 23, 1844. But the end of that prophecy, um, it says, um, the angel says to him, in verse 10, Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter, and he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. You see, once again, Jesus turns the focus to, There is a job you have to do. There is a mission that you have to do to be my witnesses. Prophesy again. Go to the many nations and, and, and tongues and people and share. Be witnesses of me, to the people around you, and ultimately to the people at the end of the earth. This little group of Adventists that began with just a few people in the beginning who rose from the ashes of the great disappointment, decided to do just that. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they became witnesses and started sharing the present truth that they discovered in the Word of God. 
And that group, when they grew to a few thousand in 1861, organized. And today, uh, in 2015, there are more than 18 million Seventh-day Adventists around the world. Um, there's about 60,000 in Australia. The 18 million um, are in 216 out of 237 countries and areas in the world recognized by the United Nations. The Seventh-day Adventist Church runs 173 hospitals, 2,164 secondary and tertiary schools, 21 food industries, including sanitarium, 15 media centers, and 63 publishing houses. But, you know, more than the numbers, I mean, numbers are cool to just to know there are people all over the world, but more than the numbers, the legacy of this early Adventist pioneers, the legacy is their passion for present truth. Present truth does not mean that we throw everything we've learned so far out the window and see where we can go by starting fresh. Present truth means taking the foundation that is fleshed out in the Bible and saying, all right, can it stand the test of time? Let's go back and study it for ourselves. And let's dig deeper and wider and longer into the depth and width and length of God's love. Let's just keep drawing out that three-dimensional character of God further and further to the corners to see who he really is and what he really wants for us. Present truth means we don't have to be afraid to study, to explore, to question, and discuss together because truth stands the test of time and investigation. Present truth means that we must undertake that legacy of, of humility to put down our presumptions and that legacy of commitment to seek, know, and to love God. And also that legacy of courage that once we discover something, to have the courage to go, tell it to the world, even though it makes us unpopular, even though it's difficult, even though it might not be what others uh, want us to share. We must make the choice, as did the early Adventists, not to blindly follow what the church nor what the society tells us, but rather to personally, thoroughly, systematically, and diligently study the word of God for ourselves. Here at Melbourne City Avenue Church, we like questions. In fact, that's why after our, each sermon time, we have a time of questions. Um, and the questions are designed in such a way so that it's not supposed to have an easy answer. The questions are designed so that to, to inspire us and to stimulate us to say, you know what, I actually don't know the answer. I want to go and study the answer. I want to go seek the answer for myself. And it is our desire here at Melbourne City Adventist Church that as we explore the questions together, that as we seek God together, that in that seeking, we'll be able to learn from each other as well as from God what is the present truth for this generation, for this city, and what it exactly is that we need to now go and tell to the world. We call our church service here the exchange. Right, the exchange for many reasons. One, because um, we want to talk about the exchange that Jesus made on the cross. That with His death, uh, we get to live, and so there's the exchange of of Jesus's life for ours. But there's also this exchange that once we meet Jesus, we let go of our our previous worldview, our previous presumptions, our, our previous thoughts, and we let them go. And we exchange it now for a Christ-centered worldview, a worldview that is founded on the Word of God. And it's also an exchange because in our exchange, in our dialogue with each other, we learn so much more the depth and the length and the width of God that we could never learn by ourselves. And so we really hope and pray that 
today and every day that as you explore the questions, as you seek God, um, that you'll be able to discover that there is a wonderful present truth for you personally that God is, is waiting to share if we are open to seeking him. Who are the Adventists? We are people committed to exploring these questions together as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus. And in a few weeks' time, you've all gotten the flyers for the August Connect series. The reason why we're having this series is to um, explore some of those questions further. Um, the speakers are going to be sharing on how to grow spiritually, how to study the Bible. And it's perfectly okay if you don't know how to dig deeper. That's why Roy and I exist. We exist to help you study the Bible more in depth. And we, we would love it if everybody wanted to be a part of a small group or a Bible study. Um, and when we go away for our Melbourne Cup weekend to Phillip Island, um, it'll be a fun time of fellowship, but it's also going to be a very practical time. We're going to go over how to study the Bible in depth, practically, with tools. We're going to bring our commentaries. We're going to bring notebooks and pens and, and all that so that you'll know by the end of that weekend how to study the Bible um, and how to study the Bible in a way that brings present truth to you um, in a way that makes a difference in your worldview. And so we look forward to that. And in the meantime, if you have any questions, um, remember we like questions, <laughs> come talk to us. And I hope we can commit to making this church a safe place where all of us can explore a Christ-centered worldview, that we can respect each other's journeys, um, but at the same time that we can encourage each other to be on this journey um, diligently and that we can together bring back that spirit of the Adventist pioneers of wanting to know God for ourselves. Thank you.